We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We rejoin part two of our debate on today's podcast, discussing the motion we should all go vegan. Could a huge shift in the planet's culinary habits be beneficial for the world? Speaking for the motion is George Monbio, environmental campaigner, columnist, and author of Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. And up against him is Patrick Holden, founder and chief executive of the Sustainable Food Trust. Our host again is Alice Thompson, columnist and interviewer for The Times. This is the second and final installment of a two-part discussion. Now let's rejoin our host, Alice Thompson, along with George Monbiot and Patrick Holden. So Ewan has put here, without livestock, how do we return nutrients and organic matter to soils that are used to growing grains? So how, as Patrick would say, how, how are you going to restore those soils that have been growing grains? Yeah, well, there's, there's a huge amount of, um, amount of mythology around this. You know, and people say, well, we're mimicking nature. This is the way you do it. You know, when you look at mixed farming yields, they're really small by comparison to other forms of grain growing or vegetable and fruit growing. And so that, that leads to considerable agricultural sprawl. It means you have to use more land to produce a given amount of food. And then when you look at the use of manure as a fertilizer, you find you're losing 37% more nitrogen 
than you do with artificial fertilizers, which is why the Soil Association rules allow you to import manure from conventional farms using Harbour Bosch nitrogen, but at one step removed. George, I, on this farm, we are practicing farming in harmony with nature, and mm. the results are fantastic for carbon, for nature, for people, and for good, delicious food. Come and see and walk around the farm with me, because honestly, this is 50 years of practice. Our yields are going up there. They're not tiny yields. We're growing crops in a rotation, and to the point that Alice made, if you were going to rebuild the devitalized and decarbonized soils after 60 or 70 years of continuous arable farming, you need a crop rotation. And typically, 50% of that rotation will be fertility building of clover and grass. And in order to turn that bit of the rotation into food that we can eat, then you need ruminant animals. And I am certain from my own observation here that the system works and builds fertility of soil. And the methane emission of the rumens, which have been part of an ancient carbon cycle, can be more than offset by the soil carbon gain. I'm really confident about this. I've never felt more positive about our relationship with nature, which, of which we are part and the animals are part. And even in your wild ecosystems, you're going to have deer, you're going to have, and we're the top predator. And unless you have many wolves and many lynxes, and you know, you're going to have to control some of these animals. And I agree with you about sheep. Of course, there are too many sheep on the mountains. There's so much inspiration that can be found from a growing number of farmers all over the world, but including in the UK, who are adopting mm. these regenerative systems. I agree with you, there's no uh, formal definition, mm. but I'm talking about a serious definition as we use in our Feeding Britain report to define the practices. I really think mm. you should reassess your yeah. view about the, uh, the efficiency right. in ecological terms of the farming systems that I've been using for 50 years. You know, when, when you look at the numbers, you find that in order to produce something which is in any way ecologically regenerative, in other words, for instance, at the Net Wildlands estate in Sussex, very famous project, which a lot of people say, you know, this reconciles um, um, the return of wildlife with food production. And it is a great example of what you call non-trophic rewilding, rewilding without predators, you know, so it's missing some components, but there's a lot coming back and it's brilliant. But they produce 54 kilos of meat per hectare per year. And if you were to turn the whole of Britain into NEP, you would, we would each have 75 um, calories of meat per day and nothing else. It's tiny, tiny productivity. Read for in you, order read to reach for half a second. <laughs> Just a moment. It, well, uh, no, well, actually, I have read that report, and it's so full of holes, it, it makes a colander look, look watertight. But well, anyway, please, um, please, can we, can we trade uh, with the public exchange of emails, yeah. starting now, mm. your critique of Feeding Britain? Because we put yeah, a no, lot I'd, of work yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I think I'm going to move on now, because otherwise you're just going to be trading facts and figures and disagreeing with each other. So uh, Joe has actually put a very good question, which is, isn't the vegan versus omnivore, omnivore argument a distraction? from the bigger causes of environmental damage, from transport and energy and plastic. You know, actually, if you take someone like Patrick's farm, what he's doing could actually be beneficial. Um, it could be neutral. You feel it's that, that actually it may be mildly detrimental, but it's nothing like flying or the plastic waste or um, really just human consumption of goods that goes on outside food production. Well, actually, um, livestock production produces more greenhouse gas emissions than all transport. 
Um, the, 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 there's a recent paper showing um, it's. Uh, I mean, it's, there's a range we we can't be completely sure, but the lower part, the, the lower point of the range is still higher than uh, than, than, than global transport emission. When you have you've got regenerative it farming might be. across um, the board, it depends. I mean, if you were to roll that out um, because of the methane and nitrous oxide produced by by his cattle, um, and you know, he, you know, he makes these claims about soil carbon. Well, we'll see. But but because of those very powerful greenhouse gases, um, uh, it, it could even be under Patrick's system that that would continue. If we were eating all your pancakes, George, wouldn't that would also be detrimental, wouldn't it? Because we'd be having farming and factories and we would also it would probably be done to scale. And you would also get these, you know, vast conglomerates coming so, in well, on well, it. And it may not yeah, actually yeah. be particularly nutritious for people to eat either. Well, you've mixed up about six different issues in one question. There, so it makes it rather hard hard to answer. But if you're talking about greenhouse gas emissions, much much lower from precision fermentation than than than, than from any of the farming systems we're talking about. Um, yes, there's a real danger of corporate concentration, as there is in all aspects of the food system, and indeed all aspects of the commercial system. And so, as uh, as everywhere, antitrust laws should be strong and intellectual property rights should be weak, and that requires political campaigning. But at the moment, 90% of the global grain trade is in the hands of four corporations. Do we ban the global grain trade? Well, if we did, billions would starve. No, we've got to break up those corporations. And we need to do that in the new food economy, just as we need to do that in the old food economy. And you think you could do that? Well, I mean, look, it's within the human capacity to create political change, but it doesn't happen passively. We have to get together. We have to campaign. We have to mobilise to create the food system as well as all other aspects of the economic system that we want to see. But that only comes about effectively through political action. It's not going to come about through consumerism alone. And we've become really passive when it comes to political action. You know, we allow the big corporations to walk all over us. And that's that's a change. It didn't used to be like that. Antitrust laws used to be strong. Intellectual property rights used to be weak. But it's been reversed by the effectiveness of corporate lobbying and the ineffectiveness of citizens campaigning. But just say we took Patrick's view, um, and Nick Sinfield's asked this, um, how long would it take to rapidly translate that to a level of success across the countryside? What kind of measures would you need? Because at the same time, as the, I mean, both of them, they're both are actually... Uh, not at extremes, but they're they're both very different views. It, it really depends on how they're rolled out, both of them, doesn't it? So it does depend on big business. It does depend on that. How how could yours be rolled out, Patrick, to make it work? I do think it would need uh, large companies. I think it will need uh, large retailers. I think it's a top-down and bottom-up transition. And it will need a bit like, as I mentioned, the energy transition, um, that started with uh, the, the then German Minister of Agriculture, Renata Kunast, introducing the feed-in tariffs, which essentially taxed the fossil fuel companies uh, to enable uh, small-scale renewable energy generation to be profitable. And look where we've got to now. It's more profitable to produce using renewable energy than it is uh, using fossil fuels. We need to get to that situation quite rapidly with, ag with uh, agriculture, land-based agriculture. And I think we can. We need to finance the agricultural transition. We need to create conditions where it's more profitable to farm the way we do than it is to farm in an extractive way. That means the application of the polluter pays principle. It needs banks, insurance companies, food companies and retailers, yes, and also governments to enter into a new collaborative a scheme whereby we, I would say it, take, it would take about a third increase in farmers' income 
to, from where sustainable farmers are at the moment to make all farmers think, OK, I'll go on this transition journey. And society as a whole has to put that together. And of course, the criticism which is on the Today programme this morning is uh, food prices will go up. Well, I, I'm sure you'll agree with this, George. We currently have dishonest food prices because the polluter isn't paying. We've got hidden costs of food which are going into climate change, damaging public health, polluting rivers. Yes, the why is an absolute disgrace. And all those mega dairy farms should be banned immediately. So government can play a role. And as we saw during the recent Ukraine conflict, when energy prices went up, the Chancellor stepped in and he gave us all money to make sure that we didn't get into energy poverty. We need to do the same with food if that becomes necessary. So it's a great coalition of different people, including small farmers and then right up to the big food companies operating together in an unprecedented way, because basically we've got no choice unless we get our foods and farming systems uh, in harmony with nature, not causing climate change, not threatening the sixth extinction, we will not have a habitable planet. The, the thing is, um, you know, all, all that is great, but if we were to reduce meat eating to the point at which it was in any way compatible with a habitable planet, you know, which means a tiny, tiny proportion of the amount of animal products that we eat today, it really would be the case that only the rich would eat it. Because it's, it it's, honestly, that's scarce. not true, George. Commodity. No, well, well, how could it not be true? I mean, that it would define... I'm old enough to, I, think you, I think I'm a bit older than you, but I'm old <laughs> enough to remember during the 50s and 60s when I was a boy, we had chicken once a month. It was a very expensive treat. We celebrated it. And that was right because ecologically, a tonne of grain is very expensive to produce. And we didn't have industrial plant production then. And so the staple meat was grass-fed and mainly grass-fed beef and lamb. We need to go forward to that situation again. And it will be it will be its true price. Yeah. We shouldn't fool ourselves that food can be cheap. It can't yeah. really be cheap. And, and the true price would ensure that, you know, only the world's richer people could eat it. Now, you look back to your childhood and say, well, you know, we, we weren't that rich. You probably, by comparison to the global My, average, let's, you were probably let's, extremely rich. You, let's, know, you, 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 you were a landowner, you, you were a farmer. You know, how, 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 how would you not be? Um, rich by comparison, so, by comparison to most of the world. To you people. here, which feeds into this, which is from an anonymous attendee, but it says eating well as a vegan is actually a challenge for time poor people. How can we vegans avoid unhealthy, ultra processed, expensive food which contains additives, preservatives, and high levels of salt and sugar, while maintaining a nutritious and wholesome food based diet? This is absolutely true, um, I, and I don't deny that at all because at the moment um, the products are really poor. Either you need to have enough time and the cooking skills and the kitchen and the pots and pans to produce your own food, um, in which case you can make really great vegan meals or you're going to be paying a lot of money for not very good products. And that needs massively to improve. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about this unicellular one-cell revolution, um, because it can produce much more cheaply with much less processing, much less um, need to sort of strip out all the plant secondary metabolites in order to make something more like an animal product. Um, and and you can, you know, I mean, that uh, that pancake I ate came straight out of the vat. The flour, just, it was just this golden coloured flour coming straight out of the vat, 100% bacteria. We had to mix it with a bit of wheat flour to bring down the protein and, and fat content. Otherwise, we would have made an omelette instead. Um, it didn't require any processing. You know, but plant-based products require a lot of processing because they're so dissimilar 
to animal-based products. And the, the protein content is much lower. Um, they, they, they're tangled up with all these plant secondary compounds, which are defensive compounds. There's loads of unicellular organisms which don't have any of that. So, and, and ultimately, this is going to be decided on price. You know, we, we, these debates are great. We can use moral suasion. That's not what's going to sway most people. It's going to be, are we, can we produce a really healthy, cheaper product with a far lower environmental impact, which people are going to want to eat. And at the moment, it has to be said, most plant-based products have failed to do that. Well, what but, about the lab? Yeah, cellular-based products can, can, can do much better. Well, sure, what we're, we're, not talking about lab, we're not talking about lab meat here. We're not talking about cultured meat. That's a dead end. We're talking about precision fermentation, yeah. But look, I'm doing precision yeah. fermentation in the rumens of my cows and making cheese. And it's working. And it's produced, it's building soil carbon and it's coexisting with an abundance of biodiversity. What's wrong with that? At a massive, at a massive land cost. And so it's, it's, this, it's this huge issue, which is always ignored. I mean, you were talking, half a sec, you asked me a question. You asked me a question. Let me answer it. Um, you know, you, you were talking about the polluter pays principle, which I'm very much in favour of. You're quite right. It's absolutely essential. But, you know, it, included in that has got to be this crucial environmental metric. How much land are you using? And what are the opportunity costs of that land use? What ecosystems would that land be supporting? How much carbon would those ecosystems be absorbing if you weren't using it in this very extensive agricultural sprawling way, using a lot of land to produce not very much food? And, and if we were to incorporate those costs, your system wouldn't come out nearly as well as you like to imagine it would. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So, George, can I just ask you one other issue? Um, 
which is who would be looking after your land if you rewilded it and, you know, across Britain? Who would own it now? Would it be owned by large landowners, which at the moment is the people who are wilding tend to be the people with the money? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's there's two models. There's two sort of major models of rewilding at the moment. One is I I call it aristocratic rewilding, which I'm I'm not so keen on. The other is community rewilding, like the Langham Moor Trust, which have bought their own land. The community's bought it or um, Trees for Life, which has bought land through public subscription. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily change the landholding model. And in fact, you can, we're in a great position to create a, a just transition here because there would be no extensive livestock production at all in this country if it weren't for public subsidies. You know, we're, we're paying the money which keeps those animals on the land and prevents wild ecosystems from, 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 from being restored. It's completely perverse. But we could pay the same money um, to farmers to say, do the opposite. You know, and let you know we'll pay you to bring back the wild ecosystems, to rewiggle the rivers, to do all the things which which draw down carbon on a vast scale, and have a much richer ecosystem defending our bigger life support systems, which keep everything going. But I suggest, with Patrick, you probably feel that you are feeding the country. That that's part of your purpose. It's it's looking after the land, but also feeling that you're giving something to the country, isn't it? That's what farmers do feel. Yes, I, I feel that. I think the farm, a healthy farm, is an ecosystem, a healthy ecosystem. We have one here. It's not unique, but I feel so sure, deeply sure, that if George, if you came and had a look around this farm today, you would be blown away by the beauty of it, by the fact that we are working the land in harmony with nature. We're producing a surprising amount of food, 30 or 40 tonnes of cheese a year, lots of milk and meat, as I mentioned earlier. And we are doing this. It's not a brawling operation. It's it's actually quite efficient, but at the same time, there's this amazing atmosphere of nature which permeates just about every corner of the farm. And I just think I don't want I don't want to trade stats with you, George. I care about science, but I'd like you to come here. And I think we should we should film ourselves going round and having a positive conversation. Because I think that for as long as you and I argue about these things, we're not going to move forward to where we both agree we need to be, which is humanity living in harmony with the natural world. And I believe we can do it based on the principles we've used here for for five decades. Well, uh, thank you, Patrick. I mean, uh, next time I'm in your part of the world, I'd love to come. I'm always visiting farms. Um, I'm always learning from them. Um, I love doing so. But we also have to see the bigger picture. We have to look at the numbers because what you have to see is what you're not seeing in any one place. That's what we mean when we talk about ecological opportunity cost. It's like, you know, we're seeing what is here and it can appeal to the eye very much so because it chimes with those farmyard storybooks. It chimes with the pastoral poetry. It chimes with the Old Testament and with the New Testament, with all those thousands of years of imagery. But what we're not seeing which very often are the things which have been demonised by our culture, the wolf, the lynx, the deep, dark forest, all those things also to an ecologist, to the eye of an ecologist, have a tremendous beauty of their own. And so we can trade aesthetics, but that actually doesn't take us very far. We also have to be aware of what the science is saying and of what the numbers are saying. Okay, now, George, I think we're going to have to wrap up there. And I think we're going to ask people to vote again and see whether anyone has changed their mind. So if you could all vote now, you have a couple of minutes. And while you are voting, so we can see 
uh, what the um, answer is. And it says host and panellists cannot vote. Um, I'll ask you just a couple of final questions, really, just summing up. Um, George, do you think this is going to happen in your lifetime at all? Or is it actually uh, just a pipe dream? And, and, and do you feel when you look at it, do you think Britain would look more beautiful in the traditional sense? Or would it look completely different under your system? <laughs> so um, more beautiful than what? I mean, we're facing, you know, we are facing a sixth great extinction. You know, we're facing the collapse of Earth systems, and it's very hard to imagine what that looks like. Um, you can see it in the rocks when it's happened before, you know, and you're talking about, you know, just ecosystems disappearing, soil disappearing, global circulation systems stopping, the planet simply becoming uninhabitable. And that will include Britain if we don't make very, very drastic and rapid changes. So, you know, I'm deeply fearful for the future if things do remain the same, if we do follow these sort of trajectories of, well, let's just carry on a bit as we are and tweak it a little bit and, and have a bit more livestock and a bit more of this, we have to make huge drastic changes, just as we do in energy, just as we do in every aspect of the economy, or we're not going to get through this century. Now, my lifetime won't extend very much further into this century. I've I turned 60 recently, you know, um, but, you know, even now, we're beginning to see drastic impacts. And a lot of those, far more than we know, are being driven by our diet. And that is primarily driven by our, our eating of animals. And Patrick, how would you sum up just to, to try and convince people to have farms like yours? Well, it's so much I agree with about what George just said. And I came here 50 years ago as a back to the lander from London, it was a hippie commune. And after 50 years, I'm deeply convinced that the system of food production that we've developed here could be applied nationally, that's our Feeding Britain report, but also uh, as appropriate to every country in the world. And I think that there is a growing awareness amongst especially young people that this change is possible, that it is needed, and that I'm convinced it's going to happen. So I, I don't feel pessimistic. And the main reason I don't feel pessimistic is from my own practical experience here on this farm. I think there's huge cause for optimism. And I just want to embrace George. I don't want to fight him. I just don't think we need this sort of combative exchanges. I, 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 I don't really feel I've even done justice, if I'm absolutely honest, during this uh, exchange. I just know some deep place inside myself that this change can happen. And if we if we collaborate and talk to each other in a new spirit, I think we can make it happen quite quickly. Thank you both very much. And we have got now the final vote, which is 31% now agree and 53% disagree. So um, I would say that uh, it's the undecideds that have really changed. So you have swung a few people, George, as has Patrick. I think we only have 16% undecided. So both of you have been fantastically persuasive. And you both, I think, your views are so much better than what we have now that I think either option, uh, to me, is just so immeasurably uh, more impressive than anything we're seeing or we're seeing out of DEFRA. So thank you both very much. Um, and I do hope 
that Georgie goes to the farm and look at Patrick's farm and I hope uh, Patrick comes and eats one of your um, pancakes at some stage. Uh, and <laughs> I'll give it a go and Alice, you're invited too. Oh, th- Thanks, Alice. Yes. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you all very much. Don't Great go to class and get a vegan sausage roll is my only thing, though. <laughs> God, good luck with that. All thank right. you all very much and thank you very much for joining and thank you so much for all the questions which were fascinating um, and for the voting, uh, which shows that more people are gradually being persuaded to go vegan. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Do sign up to the Intelligence Squared newsletter and make sure you're up to date with all our upcoming events featuring some of the world's great minds. 